This episode of the Black Doctors Podcast is brought to you by Empath IQ. Empath IQ provides reputation management and marketing tools to improve relationships between you and your patients. Their software platform encourages and curates positive reviews, enhancing your online reputation. Visit www.empathiq.io and mention the show to receive a special discount just for signing up. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host today. So happy to be speaking with Dr. Eve Rose Joseph. She is a Haitian American born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. She completed medical school at SUNY Downstate, where she stayed on for her residency in obstetrics and gynecology before continuing on to begin fellowship in urogynecology. Dr. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. Ça <laughs> passe. Ma boulet. <laughs> Here we go. This, inter- this interview has been in the works ever since I had Dr. Kiana Ward. She was my classmate. She was also your co-resident and she was on our very oh, first season. And Bestie, yeah. She was on the very first season of the podcast and shortly thereafter she said, you need to get uh, Eve Rose on here to talk about interviews and your gynecology and all this. And uh, so I am a chronic procrastinator. <laughs> well, do you guys know? But nonetheless, here you are. So Dr. Joseph, um, let's talk about, you know, the, the very beginning. You Haitian American, um, were you born here? Were you born in Haiti? What was your childhood like? So I was born um, in Brooklyn, New York, um, at Kings County Hospital, which full oh, circle no. is one of the hospitals I did my residency at. Um, I'm the youngest of seven children, Haitian parents, and um, first physician in my family. So um, a lot of shoes to fill, but um, by God's grace, I did it. <laughs> Yeah. Born and raised in Brooklyn. So when did you decide to go into medicine? I knew very early I wanted to go to medical school. When I was younger, like in fourth grade, I played around thinking I would want to be a writer. Um, actually, in, in fourth grade, um, I was fortunate enough to work with one of a prominent Haitian author, Edwige Dutika. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she was the cousin of um, one of my professors, my teachers. And so I thought I would want to be a writer and talk about, you know, my, my childhood, my Haitian culture. But my mom got very sick at that time. And um, so my, my mind shifted and I thought maybe I'd want to be a cardiologist because she had some, you know, heart issues. And I said, oh, I'll be a cardiologist so I can take care of my mom. So that's where medicine started to come into play. And um, I just stuck with it. Yeah. So what kind of helped propel you along the way? Um, did you have a lot of resources and knowledge when you were heading into very the little, field of medicine? Very little. Like I said, like I'm the first physician in my family, immediate and extended family. Um, so you can imagine I had no one to really talk me through how to even apply to college. How to, Thinking about medical school was just, you can do it because you're smart. So I always had affirmations. And I think like what my family couldn't do um, physically to support me in my journey, they did um, by 
supporting me in other ways. So I was encouraged very early. My family was very supportive in that regard, but I really had to figure things out on my own. So I was fortunate to have really good teachers in high school, good guidance counselors that really helped me believe in myself and think that medicine was something that I could achieve. So after high school, where'd you go to college? I went to college um, at Smith um, Smith College, one of the Seven Sisters in Northampton, Massachusetts. And that in and of itself was a, a, a journey. So I'd never heard of Smith. I'd never visited Smith before I got there. Oh, man. Because coming from Brooklyn, New York, Flatbush, Brooklyn, my family's not, they don't know, you know, driving me up to Northampton. <laughs> that's not going to happen. But I didn't even know of Smith until my guidance counselor, my high school guidance counselor, um, I did very well in school. And so she was like, oh, I think you should apply to Smith. Um, you would do great there. And I was like, okay, it's an all-women's college. I started learning more about it and all the prominent women that have come from that school. And so I was just like, oh, that's okay. I'll apply. I applied and forgot it. Like, didn't Uh-oh. even remember that I had applied <laughs> there because I had my eyes set, you know, on other schools. And then I was fortunate enough I got in. But once you get in, you get the financial, you know, the cost mm-hmm. of the school. And I was just like, Whew, this is not going to happen because it's expensive. And then um, at that time, there was, you know, in New York City public schools, you have like scholarships that you can apply for. And at that time, there was um, the Jerry Seinfeld Family Foundation Scholarship from Jerry Seinfeld himself. Each year in New York City public schools, he would... Um, choose a borough and um, to award full scholarships, full academic scholarships to those um, graduates. It just so happened that the year that I was graduating, he was selecting students from Brooklyn. So you had to apply, submit letters of recommendation, your transcript, essays. Um, So I did that. Then you get through, that was the first round. So I, I think my year, 150 people applied. From 150 people, they interviewed 30. So I remember going and getting my suit (laughs) um, to go on that interview. And um, from 150 um, applicants, 30 people got the interview. I was fortunate to be one of the 30. And from the 30, they awarded it to 15. So it was a full academic scholarship from Jerry Seinfeld. I'm very grateful. So I went... So I went to Smith without any loans, full tuition, four years paid. Thank God. <laughs> are you a sign? Are you are you a fan of the uh, the show? I was always a fan of the show, but <laughs> even more so afterwards because um, yes, you helped me out. <laughs> you that made is... Smith a possible, you know, attainable a reality for me. So I was very grateful, and um, you know, we had as um, sign for scholars, as we were called. We had um, times where we could go to his um, events in New York City. I remember seeing him at a comedy concert at the Lincoln Center. Each year he, had, he would have like an annual banquet for his you know, scholars. So it was fun. Yep. That is amazing. <laughs> so you transitioned to this new school, new environment. You know, the, the road to medicine isn't linear. There's always other things going on. So in the middle of this adjustment, you still had to stay focused on the end goal of becoming a physician. Very much so. And Smith um, was, as you can imagine, Northampton, complete culture shock from what, where I grew up in Brooklyn. So I was in Brooklyn, Flatbush, Brooklyn. I was around 
people who looked like me. I went to school who people with people who looked like me. And I was in an environment where I was the minority. So I wasn't used to that. And I remember actually the morning after, because, you know, imposter syndrome is very real. So mm-hmm. I remember when I first got there and I was just like, I'm, I don't belong here. Like, what was I thinking? I should have just stayed in New York, stayed with my family. And then just thinking about the resources that Smith had going to a name, you know, a, name, a school with that name. I said, I do deserve it. I've worked hard. I'm smart enough. So I really had to tell myself what other people have been telling me all along that I was capable. Yeah. I had to start believing it because in, you know, in Flatbush being one, you, I was able to shine because I was in a community where not many people had, um, unfortunately, the push to, to continue on with their education. So it was easy for me to shine. But in an environment like Smith, at Smith, I was the minority in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so um, I had to find my purpose, my motivation within myself. So what did you major in? So I actually majored in sociology and um, in pre-med. I did my pre-med courses, but I wasn't even planning on uh, majoring in sociology. I took one sociology course and I just love thinking that way, using the left side of my brain, reading the books. And so I took one class after another. And then by then I was like, oh, I have enough to do the major. And so I did Hmm. sociology and pre-med. After finishing college, you applied to medical school. You ultimately were accepted to, I'm sure, multiple schools, one of which being SUNY Downstate. Yes. So how important was it for you to return home, essentially, for medical school? It was very important to me. So when I went to medical school, I knew that I wanted to take care of patients who looked like me. I wanted to be in an environment where I could um, really uplift my community. And so I was fortunate to have acceptances at other places. But, you know, thinking about SUNY Downstate in Kings County, it's such a wonderful institution in terms of the patients that you, you, I would have the privilege to serve. And so when I thought about that, I thought about Kings County, where I was born. I said, OK, I think this would be a good fit for me. My family's there, so I'll have the support for medical school because I knew it would be challenging. And so I said, yep, I'll do, I'll do medical school at SUNY Downstate. My family, of course, were excited to have me back. Um, <laughs> so that's what made me choose SUNY Downstate. And at that point, did you know that you were headed towards a career in obstetrics and gynecologic surgery? I knew I had wanted to do urogynecology. So in college, really? I did do a mission trip to the Dominican Republic. And I, I worked with um, not only the Dominican patients, but also the Haitian refugees to the Dominican Republic at a public hospital, one of their public hospitals in San Francisco de Macorís in, in the Dominican Republic. And there I had the opportunity to work with OBGYNs and urogynecologists. And um, I just thought, oh, that's you know, what they're doing is very interesting. And then I had thought I wanted to do a lot of fistula work, mission work, and take care of women with fistulas. And so that's what made me start thinking maybe I would want to do urogynecology. I wasn't sure if I would do it through obstetrics and gynecology, um, but I knew I wanted that that specialty um, was of interest to me. Yeah. So coming out of medical school, you applied to residencies mm-hmm. and you ended up matching at SUNY Downstate. Yes. So was that planned or did it just happen or, or what? 
So it became planned. So initially I thought I wanted to go away. So I said, okay, I already did medical school at SUNY Downstate. I'll go away for, for a residency. Um, and then I interviewed for, at different places, but then I said, okay, I really want to take care of the women in, in Flatbush, in East Flatbush. Um, and so I said, okay, last minute, I changed my rank list right before it was due. Wow. <laughs> and then um, <laughs> I moved down, stayed up. And so um, I stayed on. Yeah. And it worked out because I made, I made a lot of, you know, great friends. Um, and I loved um, taking care of that community. So mm-hmm. yeah, even, even with uh, Dr. Ward as your senior resident? You know, she's my fave, one of my faves. Okay. <laughs> Wardy is a great physician. <laughs> So during residency, did you get a chance to rotate through uh, your gynecologic service? Yes. So even as a medical student. So I knew oh, I wow. wanted um, to do urogynecology. So as a fourth year medical student, I did an elective in urogynecology. And then as a third year resident, I had an, the opportunity to do um, an away elective at Brown. They have one of the big divisions in the field. Um, and so, again, solidifying that this is really what I wanted to do. Yeah, and I think it's so important, you know, as I've been able to speak with other people in different specialties and subspecialties on this podcast, that there's so many incredible uh, subspecialties in medicine. So can you talk for a little bit about this field of urogynecology? Yeah. Um, so it's, I can talk about it at length. Um, so. <laughs> So basically, urogynecology, or the other name for it is female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. Um, what it is, is a subspecialty in OBGYN, and, or you can do it through urology, um, where you take care of female patients or patients with pelvic floor disorders. I mean, that really encompasses, you know, many common but infrequently discussed conditions, which significantly impact women's quality of life. And these complex disorders, um, such as urinary and bowel incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, childbirth injury, genital fistulas, um, recurrent urinary tract infection, bladder pain, and sexual dysfunction. So these are many um, conditions, many disorders um, that you, as the subspecialist, you're able to take care of those patients. And a lot of it is managing and taking care of patients and improving their quality of life. You know, I always say when I see a patient with prolapse, I'm like, this is not going to kill you. This is more about your quality of life. And as because my patient population tends to be a lot older, um, I see the importance of making people comfortable in their last few years or several years of life. And so and um, the stigma around it is what really motivates me to talk about it because a lot of women with incontinence, with prolapse, they feel ashamed. They don't want to talk about it. Um, And I'll see patients with complete precedentia. And I'm like, I know you've had this for a long time. They said years. I've had it for years. Would you say? Complete, complete what? Complete precedentia, which is where they they have complete prolapse. So it could be um, complete eversion or the uterus is coming out completely out of their body. Um, Mm. So this, it takes years for that to happen. And so, you know, these patients suffer in silence. They don't want to bring it up to their providers. Um, So I get the opportunity to take care of them. And as we were hanging out a couple weeks ago and you really kind of blew my mind, 
explaining everything that went into the subspecialty. When it comes to awareness and discussion, obviously there's a lot of healthcare disparities and obviously disproportionately affects minority communities. What would you say to those patients, those families about getting these these conditions checked out and, and seeking help? I would say that we have treatments available, especially for prolapse and bladder um, dysfunction. So incontinence, urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse. I tell patients all the time um, that we, as this, in this subspecialty, that we can take care of your issues. We can make you, you know, as dry as possible. We can definitely fix your prolapse. But patients, if they don't know about us um, or they don't know that we can take care of those conditions, won't mention it. So I always feel like the burden is on the providers um, whether you're a family medicine, internal medicine, primary care physician, that you bring up those issues, OBGYN, you bring up certain, you know, those issues with your patients and have that conversation, start the conversation. Um, but it's many of those things that I mentioned are fixable and it affects their qual- patient's quality of life so much that it breaks my heart when I see a patient that they're telling me, they don't go to church. They don't go out anymore. They're not hanging out with their mm. friends because they cannot make it to the bathroom in time. And so they're soaking all up their clothes or they always have to look for bathrooms wherever they go because that is at the forefront of their minds. And so I'm like, I can take care of that. Just come to me uh, and I'll take care of you. Yeah. So what do you, I mean, obviously, well, I mean, I don't really work primary care and do anesthesia, but so I, I see, I work with your colleagues in the yeah. OR. But for those physicians that are seeing these patients, uh, you mentioned family medicine, internal medicine, probably some ER yes, physicians emergency. and, and mm-hmm. uh, obstetricians, kind of the generalists. What would you say to them in terms of evaluating and triaging patients so that they get to see you and your colleagues? So, you know, simple questions. You can ask them, do you have any problem, any trouble holding your urine, any trouble holding your stool? Um, that will get the patient's. Um, started or thinking about, hey, maybe I do, maybe I do leak urine. Um, do you feel like a bulge, something coming outside of your vagina? Very, you know, three quick um, questions that you can ask patients, and then if they do say yes, okay, I'll refer you to your GYN. And oftentimes, the gynecologist they know they'll refer to, you know, the urogynecologist. Um, gotcha. But especially for the family medicine, internal medicine. Um, colleagues, three simple questions, and you can refer to GYN or even urogynecology. And when it comes to urogynecologists, because you guys do some pretty specialized procedures, what what talk about those? Oh, there's so many. So, like I said, one of the the conditions or disorders that we treat is pelvic organ prolapse, and um, there's such a wide variety in terms of how we can treat this. Um, um, disorder. We can there are non-surgical options with you know pessary pelvic floor exercises. I'm working with a pelvic floor therapist, but the other side of it is surgical management. You know sometimes you know your prolapse is advanced stage because we stage the prolapse from one to four, four being the most severe. That if it's really severe or it's impacting your quality of life, or, you know any reason at all. Basically, if it's elective surgery, so if the patient is bothered significantly by it, we can definitely consider, you know, surgical treatment. Um, so we do 
vaginal surgery, robotic, laparoscopic assisted surgery, or um, open. But usually it's a minimally invasive um, surgery. So usually uh, vaginal or robotic laparoscopic um, surgeries. And for severe prolapse, you know, there's a variety. If a patient, it depends on the medical condition. So if the patient is a poor surgical candidate, then we'll try to do the least amount of surgery. So that's usually vaginal. Um, whether that's just a vaginal hysterectomy or another procedure that we often do is a copocaesis where we close off the vagina for patients who don't want to um, continue with um, sexual function. But if patients are interested in maintaining their sexual function, then we will oftentimes do an abdominal procedure with a sacrococopexy. That's where we use mesh abdominally to fix the prolapse. Hmm. And then you guys do these uh, interstem devices? Yes, we do. So interstem, um, uh, we it's called sacral neuromodulation. Um, and so we can do that procedure for patients with urinary or bowel um, incontinence. Um, and so if patients, you know, we have an algorithm, we try, patients will try lifestyle modifications, medications. Um, and if medications are not helpful, then we can offer them as Botox injections inside the bladder for their urinary incontinence. And if patients don't want Botox or, you know, they'd rather go with the um, neuromodulation than interstem, there's there are other, there are two um, main companies, Medtronic and Axonics, that are available for patients at this time. Hmm. It's like a remote control for your... Uh... Sphincters. <laughs> but it's like a pacemaker for your bladder and bowel. So we, um, you know, you have like a little battery that's inserted on your buttock, and it's <laughs> interesting. Pretty incredible. Yeah. <laughs> incredible. No. Uh, yes. Again, for most med students out there and pre-med, you know, you may have no idea that this incredible field even exists, and then these. The specialized procedures that you get to do in this field are, are amazing. Yeah, it's very specialized. It's, it's very, you know, surgically, it's a surgical subspecialty. So I always tell um, students who are thinking, I may want to do surgery, but I don't want to necessarily do general surgery, consider OBGYN. And then in OBGYN, you have, you know, surgical subspecialties such as urogynecology, um, GYN oncology, um, on minimally invasive GYN surgery as well. Yeah, that is uh, fantastic. Dr. Joseph, in addition to everything that you've done clinically, and then and you're in your second year out of three for the fellowship, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first spoke with Dr. Ward, she spoke highly of your skills when it comes to interviews. I know we're kind of in the middle of interview season for medical students. When did you first kind of realize that you had a knack for interviews? Um, I think if I go back and think, I would say um, when I did that interview for the Seinfeld Scholarship, I realized <laughs> no, I <laughs> I realized that I was really good at answering questions. Like I knew what you know the interviewers were looking for, um, mm-hmm. and so once I realized that, it really didn't occur to me that I was like really good until until I started coaching people. So I started um, coaching my co-residents who are looking for jobs or applying to fellowships, um, medical students who are applying to residencies. And I would just do mock interviews and ask them questions and see how they would answer and then help them frame their answers, you know, in a way that I think 
program directors, um, employers would be uh, that would work in their favor. What are some of the the uh, top mistakes that you see folks start to make when you're working with them for interviews? I think people don't sell themselves enough. Um, it's a skill because you have to do it in a way that you're not coming off arrogant. Um, but you also don't want to downplay all of your accomplishments. And so it's knowing the right way to put them in. Um, so it's, you know, you keep the conversation going. But one thing that I notice is that people underestimate what they've accomplished and they don't sell themselves enough. And being bold in the interview in terms of if you really want this job, you want this position, say that, you know, and why you would be hmm. so, you would be good at this position, why, why you would fit into this residency program, this fellowship program. Um, be yourself, because as someone who now interviews with the fellowship, I, I can tell when someone is putting on a show when they're not being themselves. So it's a, it's a balance, but I think I can help people <laughs> get that balance. So, Dr. Joseph, why should I hire you to my boutique urogynecologic practice? Why should you hire me? Well, because I care for my patients. First and foremost, I really want to take care of my patients, improve their quality of life. But also, I'm surgically inclined to take care of my patients. I have the skills. I did a fellowship, seen a lot of um, cases, done a lot of surgeries that I think that I'll be able to take care of women and take care of them safely. I'd be good. Very good. <laughs> All right. <I'm> hired. <laughs> and uh, in addition to medical students, residents, when it comes to even looking into jobs, like what are some things or some uh, ways that applicants to jobs can really excel on on their interviews? Um, I, I would say, you know, find out why you would what you would add or bring to that job specifically. So I know for me, like, you know, what do my my res my interview for fellowship and even residency? I was emotionally tied to Kings County SUNY Downseed. I knew I wanted mm-hmm. to be in that environment. I wanted to take care of the patients, and so I think when you're looking for a job, whatever um, field, knowing why is that position so important to you? What what would you add? What would you bring? There, you know, if all physicians. The playing field is equal at that point. We've all done the same training. We've had the same amount of training. We've done the fellowship. We've done, you know, the research. So what are you going to do that's different? And I also think the personality is important. Um, Sometimes people are, they, they don't come across well to employees or to employers. And so I think if you know that you are someone that's shy you may not, you may, you know, be quiet, reserved in an interview. So that's not, that can come off as being sent offish to an employer. And so you may want to have a coach and you may want to do mock interviews so that you're forced to talk about yourself, forced to talk about your plans, your career goals, um, so that when you're interviewing, it's not the first time that you're answering those questions. Because if you, it is, then... You know, people can see that mm-hmm. and it may not work in your favor. It's very helpful. I like what you said that the playing field is now equal because I know right. as students and as student as minority students, we're always kind of fighting this uphill battle, you know, in part having the imposter syndrome. Am I good enough? Do they want me? And, you know, towards the end, you start to realize your worth. And like you, you, you said so plainly, the playing field is now equal. Right. Because you went to medical school. Your scores are what they are. If they offered you an interview, that's why I always say 
I just need the interview because once I have the interview, I'm going to sell myself that you will see Eve Rose, that you will see me and that you would want me. And I remember that vividly because, you know, I went on the interview trail for uh, Urogynecology for Fellowship. There are not a lot of positions, not a lot of spots. A lot of people are coming from renowned, you know, programs with well-known faculty. And so I felt like, oh, I was at a disadvantage because I'm, here I am doing this. But I said, you know what? They offered me an interview. So on the day of yeah. the interview, I'm here. So I'm here. That means we're equal. And all I have to do is sell myself and go in the interview and just, you know, go for it. I want this position. I want to be a urogynecologist. And I, I didn't leave the room until I felt my interviewer knew what I wanted to do and how I would do it at their program. And so for residency, I would tell applicants to do the same, making sure that before they leave, that the, that the um, interviewer knows that they, this person really wants to be here. This person really wants to do this specialty. Um, let's give them a chance. What are some questions that, you know, applicants to residency should ask their programs? There, I would say there are different categories of questions. Um, so I think you want to, and I'll give broad categories. Um, so you definitely want to ask about how will your, what, how will your learning be structured? So do they have mm-hmm. formal didactics um, sessions? Who's doing the didactics? Um, so you want to you you want to know about your learning. Is it a is it prioritized? Is it service? Is the program service over learning, where you'll be doing a lot of scut work, um, and not really have faculty members dedicated to your teaching? You want to know that because at the end of the day, especially if you're a resident, you know, trying to you know, working or applying to become a resident, you want to learn. You want to make sure that your um, attending physicians, you're, they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do, being at an academic um, facility to teach you. The other thing is you also want to learn how or what does the department itself value, the values of the department, whether they value diversity, inclusion, um, whether they value wellness. That's such a big, important component that physicians, we don't talk about enough. Um, wellness and to making sure that we are healthy um, and taking care of ourselves as we take care of patients. Um, and you also want to know, hey, looking at this department, the, anyone who looks like me here, any resident, any faculty member in this day and age, you do want to know <laughs> because you, you want to be comfortable. That's one of the things that drew me to my program at Emory. Um, seeing my division director being a woman of color. And I said, oh, I could see myself. I, could, I see someone who looks like me doing this, so I could do it too. And so that's not always, you know, something that you need, but I knew I needed that. So it's reconciling your values, what you're looking for in a program, and asking targeted questions, um, doing residency interviews um, at these programs to see if they will align with your values. Very good. Very good information. Um, lastly, I, this is a question that I've gotten a couple of times. And you're, you know, doing some interviews and involved. So in this world of virtual interviews, it's been around for a good two years now. What are some common mistakes that you're still seeing in people that are doing uh, virtual interviews? Thinking that the mute button is on when it's not. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I got I got caught there at a fellowship interview because I had a tennis match on. I knew it was on mute. I was pretty sure. 
And then uh, the pro director was like, oh, tennis fan. Yes, you'll be uh, surprised. You want to, I always say you stay professional all the way through until you close the screen. (laughs) You maintain your professionalism because you, you don't want to be caught, you know, like doing something crazy on camera or saying something ridiculous. And so a lot of people, I think they they think that they hit the mute button or the video of the camera, Mm. you know, turned off the camera and it's still going. And so, you know, (laughs) you hear things you, I I shouldn't have heard. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's, yeah. And what about, um, I saw this on Twitter. I don't know if it's a true story or not. Somebody said they were interviewing and their um, virtual interviewer had them stand up to make sure that they were like wearing a full suit. What would you do or what would you say to do if somebody told you to do that in an interview for residency, right? Mm-hmm. I would do it because, you know, I would. So my mindset is if I'm doing an interview, I actually do wear like a full suit. Even when I'm like, if I'm interviewing as a fellow, like I'm interviewing a potential candidates, I'm dressed. I'm not like slacking. I don't have pajamas hmm. on at the bottom. And so I wouldn't be opposed if someone wanted me to stand up and do it. Cause I know I'll be dressed to do it. And so I think putting on the full suit, even though you're only going into your living room to do it. I think once you put on that character, you put on the suit it, for some reason, for me, it gives me the confidence. I take it more seriously because I know this is an actual interview. Um, I haven't done that. I'm not, I don't think that's necessary. Um, but I think if someone were to ask me to do it on an interview, I think I would be dressed fully. So I wouldn't mind doing it. That's good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you're a pro at this uh, interview thing. And I know you help, you're obviously very busy with fellowship and you are amenable to helping people when you can, um, mm-hmm. your co-residents, medical students, et cetera, with interviews. I don't know. You, do you have any formal program out there to help other students i don't yet um usually it's people who put me put people in contact with me and then i'll set up a time to interview people to do mock interviews so i don't have like you know a website or you know something to for people to reach out to me directly um but i'm available i can give you my email which you have my personal email but i'll give you like my professional email that um, people can reach out to me and then uh any social media sites or linkedin that you're i do have my linkedin um so people could reach out to me um through linkedin which i'm i use it pretty um you know common commonly so i'd be okay with people reaching out to me there i'm on social media but again private uh, personal pages (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which I'm not opposed I have I'm you know I'm open book um, so I don't mind if anyone finds me on social media Instagram Facebook and reach out to me that way I'm, I'm just happy to help and I usually make time I am pretty busy as a fellow but I make time for um, for interviews because I, I think that's important yes that is uh, incredible that you that you do this and you're definitely helping to increase diversity in yes. these respective health fields um, Dr. Joseph, thank you so much. You've added so much value just talking to you and the tips that you provided about interviewing and all the information you shared about uh, the field of urogynecology. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and for, for being here today because representation matters. Thank you so much for having me. 
Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.